I started out as some dumb farm boy. <laughs> Honestly, when I was 15 years old, I went to work in a slaughterhouse. Okay. And I thought, how did I go from there to there? Yeah. And that's what I want to do. I want to keep moving from there to there. Well, hello and welcome to Better Stories, the podcast. My name is Justin Bowers, and this is episode one. I'm so excited about this. This is a brand new podcast, and I want you to know simply the purpose of Better Stories is that we want to create a revolution against boredom and a new movement of passion and purpose. Uh, I'm so excited about today's guest. I can't wait to get into the interview and let you hear some of the stories that this guy has to share, and I'll tell you all about that in a minute. But, but first of all, I just I want you to know that I, I have been thinking about a podcast for a long time, like literally several years. I've been bouncing around that idea and thinking this would be so fun, such a fun way to get content and thought and conversation going in some different people's lives uh, and in their ears. And, and Better Stories is really, truly, and most simply about bringing life to people who maybe need it. Um, I, I look around our world and I see that a lot of us actually fight this battle of boredom and, and just living the same thing day in and day out and, and really not being intentional with the purpose and, and the passion and the life that we've been given. And, and so what I'm going to do with Better Stories is we're going to host several interviews, friends of mine, acquaintances, people that I've heard about, and we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about exactly how they're doing that in their lives and uh, it's going to be a blast. I can't wait to share many of these relationships with you, many of the hearts of these people that I know and the things that I've seen and experienced. And my life has been better because of my relationship with them. And so that's that's what this is all about. Um, I do also want to let you know that we are going to do a series of live events that we're calling Simply Better Stories Live. And uh, our first live event is going to be on April 21st. It's a Friday night. Uh, We're going to be doing a live event on April 21st at a place called the McNemer House in Buchanan, West Virginia. And the McNemer House is this just beautiful farmhouse um, right in our local community. Now, we are are giving away tickets. We're not charging anything for that. Um, But those tickets are gone, like they've, they've sold out. So that being said... Our second live event, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release this as brand new information, is going to be May 12th, Friday, May 12th. We're going to do another Better Stories live event at the McNemer House, and I would love to have you guys uh, be a part of that. I'll be releasing the ticket information soon on the website. Our website is tensionleads.com, tensionleads.com. I spend time blogging there, um, spend time, I'll post these podcasts on there, sharing some thoughts, some different resources with you guys. But uh, you can stay up to date. You can stay in the news and, and everything that's going on with better stories, with, with all that there at tensionleads.com. Today, I am super excited to host an interview with a good friend of mine named Mike Masterman. Now, Mike and I had the opportunity to travel to Ethiopia about a year and a half ago, um, and we had an amazing trip in Ethiopia. But I got to tell you, as I got to know Mike, Mike attends the church that I pastor, and, and this was really my first experience to get to know Mike a little bit better um, and as I got to know Mike on the flight over, man, he was sharing these stories with me about his travels, about his life, about his family and his job. And I just, man, I was just captivated by listening to the things that he's experienced and the intentionality that he puts into his job and his family and his life and his travels. And I thought when we started Better Stories, this is the, this is the guy, like what a great example of exactly what we're talking about. So Mike Masterman, um, good friend of mine, and today you're going to get to hear all about 
the better stories that Mike is living. Enjoy this. Uh, why don't you, Mike, introduce yourself to us and tell us a little bit about... Um, Everybody typically starts with what they do as a job, but you can start wherever you want. You can tell us about your family, your wherever you want to start, whatever you want to do. I'm Mike Masterman. Um, I have a wife and three kids living in Buchanan, West Virginia, and I also run a business named Extreme Endeavors. Okay, tell us about the the business. When I when I describe you to people, I try to avoid the phrase mad scientist because I don't think you're mad, but I, I think there's a science part, there's a there's an invention part, there's a creativity part. So tell us about how that fits in your in your role, your job, your company. Okay. The the company was actually started before I settled down and was married and everything. Yeah. The company was actually started in Antarctica where um, basically I was finishing up down there trying to figure out what am I going to do with the rest of my life. Um, and when I came out of there, the first contract we had was actually to head back to Antarctica and do some work for NASA. Um, and then the, the second contract we actually had was to provide monitoring in Hellhole, a cave out in Germany Valley. So uh, Where is Germany Valley? Is that... It's out by Seneca Rocks in okay. West Virginia. Okay. And that. So and just it, it fits so well with what I wanted to do with the company. Just because to enter into that cave was a 180-foot vertical drop that we rappel into and place sensors back in the cave. And now we've got a network connection up where, you know, the server that automatically downloads the data from that cave. Um, and a, another cave in the area, too. Not as spectacular. But, um, but that kind of led a technology base of where then we could take that technology and then transform it into other applications. Um, we did some work for a while for the government in um, researching physiology of firefighters. Mm. You know, how, how, how hard can you push a firefighter before he stops and dies? Mm. Um, did some work with uh, special forces in medical monitoring. When the economy kind of changed around, we had to change the focus of the business where we took it to being more of a commercial entity where we're providing services to um, businesses and cities and public service districts. Okay. And you so. started the company, is that correct? Yes, I started the company. Okay. So what, what led you to that? I mean, you know, everybody talks about entrepreneurs and everybody talks about this, the risk involved. What, what was it for the you that kind of was that driving force that said, I've got to do this versus... I've got to, and we'll get to Antarctica because I want to hear how you got there and what, what that was like. But you're coming out of Antarctica and you're thinking, I got to do something. Most people at that point in life probably are thinking, I, I got to find something stable. Entrepreneurial work is never stable right off the bat, I would imagine. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, so what, what was the driving force for that for you? I had no idea what else to do. Mm-hmm. I couldn't stand to sit in an office eight hours a day doing, you know, and I, by trade I'm an engineer. So I would have been sitting in an office somewhere, you know, I I interviewed for, um, I believe it was Verizon, and they told me, and this was back in the late 90s, they told me, they said, if if you're working as an engineer, and we've got a problem on the tower up there, you know, uh, and you're down doing this work, um, basically you'll have climbers go up there for you, and you'll have this person that will do this for you, and this person that will do this for you. That meant my job was sitting there behind the computer 
24, you know, however long I was stuck behind that computer. And I just couldn't handle that. Okay. So you couldn't stand the thought of someone else getting to climb the, the towers. That's right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. So tell me, uh, when it comes to, you know, the, the work that you're doing right now or your family or life in general, what, what is it that's, that's waking you up in the morning, giving you most excitement? What are you most excited about? Right now, a good deal of it is a thrill of the deal. My job in the company is to bring new business in, is to make, um, to give the company direction as far as to, for the growth in that. And how am I going to position this company to survive in a new political administration? Mm. How am I going to reach out to a small city that has hardly any income, be able to generate revenue off that and provide them a better product? Okay. And that. So, so it's, it's changed more from a, you know, now, now keep in mind, I still get to go and this summer we'll probably be doing a drop into hellhole. Occasionally, I still will go out, climb a water tank or a tower, install electronics, but those are just fun things I get to do on the side. It's my main focus and is the thrill of the deal, I would call it. What is it about that that's, that's kind of capturing your attention, your passion? The difficultiness of it. Okay. It's, and it's also, being an engineer, I'm very practical. So, um, you know, if, if you've got three different options... I can evaluate which option is better based upon performance or whatever. People don't always do that, though. They operate more off of a feeling when they're purchasing something. And learning that new, uh, that new process in my head and everything like that is really, I don't want to say it's exciting for me, but it's a little bit different and it's challenging. So I want to meet that challenge and advance that way. So in the way that you're your mind works and the way you think through things logically. I mean, you strike me as this, you've got the creative thinking, but it's very logical yes. in the way that you put it together. It, it's an engineer. It, is it? Um, and if you look at back in back years ago, and some of the younger listeners might not recognize this, but when they came out with beta versus VHS, mm. beta was actually better quality. Okay, and you're talking but video, right? Video, the, yeah. So some, the, some people have yeah. never seen a VHS yeah. tape. These are the old but, VCRs, right? But, yeah, was the old VCRs. Beta was better quality, but VCR, the uh, VHS tapes had better marketing people. Okay. And that's what allowed the product to take off, not because of the quality and what the engineers did with it. So does that create a tension for you? I mean, do you feel like there's the way your mind works is logical and creative, and here we are, this is the natural decision. I would imagine that's kind of the way you think... Tension is the negative way to look at it. Okay. Look at it as a challenge. Versus challenge. This is, this is a great point Yeah. I want to hit on. I want to hear your thoughts. Okay. On. The best way I can describe it, we had the water line break going into our house and flooded the entire basement. My wife sees that as tension. <laughs> I see that as a challenge. I've now got to rebuild, knock out drywall, replace all the flooring, everything like that. Okay. And it becomes a goal for me. By converting it from tension to a challenge, there's no more stress involved in it. Mm, man, that's good. So we, when I work with leaders, I talk about nobody goes to see a movie that has no conflict, right? There's Everybody wants some sense of tension in, in okay. the stories. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. That's, I think that's great. Man, that's, that's a great insight for, for young leaders to think about, too, and anybody. Um, so you mentioned Antarctica, and you and I had the opportunity to travel to Ethiopia together, I, and I 
just could have sat and listened to your travel stories all day. Talk about, and, and again, I want to hear, you know, kind of your experience in Antarctica. Was that your first travel experience or were you, did you have the travel bug well before that? I would say I had the travel bug well before it, but I never knew it. Okay. 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 So how did you, what happened? What, what took you to Antarctica and then? Well, what really took me to Antarctica was work. I mean, I was working at the observatory um, in Green Bank, West Virginia, and one night it was about 10 below zero outside, about, you know, six inches to a foot of snow on the ground, and the astronomer calls up and says there's a problem with the telescope. So I drive down the telescope at about two in the morning and um, realize the problem was in a small little diode, noise diode at the top of the telescope. So I got all my gear on, I climbed up the top a couple hundred feet in the air, and I swapped out this part. It took me about 40 minutes, 40, 45 minutes. When I came down, the astronomer offered me a job in Antarctica. <laughs> so uh, within, uh, just in my mind, it happened almost immediately. I mean, it was a, a long, lengthy process of about three or four months, you know, contacting, talking to different people over the phone and stuff like that. Um, but I pretty much sight unseen, signed my name on a line to go spend an entire year in Antarctica for 13 months. Okay. So you get there, and you're, how old are you at this point? Do you remember? I was 24. Okay. 24 years old. You're going to be in Antarctica for a year. What's your first impressions? Besides it's cold. Oh, when I first arrived in yeah, Antarctica? Yeah. yeah. What did I get myself into? Okay. I mean, honestly, because I remember when we arrived in McMurdo Station... Keep in mind, you've been traveling for days on days to get even to the continent. And so we arrive in McMurdo Station, and everybody gets off the plane. They've got normal summertime jackets on, you know, normal jackets on and stuff like that. And as we pile out of the plane, you got your sunglasses on, and everybody's just kind of hanging out. It's maybe 20 or 30 degrees. I mean, this is not what I was expecting. It's relatively pleasant and stuff like that. Well, then we hop on a different transport where we go to the South Pole which is the station right at the bottom of the earth, right where the hole is in the bottom of the globe. And I will never forget, as we're flying in, and the only planes that will go there are these LC-130s with skis on the bottom of them that we're transported in, sitting in the C-130 and looking around at all the people, and as they say, we're coming in for a landing, as they were announcing that we're dropping, I saw everybody putting on goggles, putting on hats, putting on gloves, putting on their full-gear parka, and stuff, and that sight of everybody putting on all that gear, just when you've never been there before, just ramps up the expectations <laughs> of what it's going to be like. What did I get myself into? <laughs> what did I get myself? Then, when the plane lands, they don't shut off the engines. It's so cold that they keep the motors running really hard to get them started if they shut them down. So when you step off that plane, you've got these huge, enormous propellers spinning. And the sounds of the engines, you're at over 10,000 feet altitude, and you're nailed by a gust of air at 40 below zero. You step off that plane. Keep in mind, also, you've got 20, 30 pounds of gear you're carrying and clothes and everything. Step off the plane, you go around the front of it, and you come out and you see the dome, which is where you're going to be living for the next year. Everything around you is flat, white, bleak. Um, and that... That sight will stay 
imprinted on my mind forever. Were at that point, were you excited? Were you nervous? Were you like rethinking yes. everything? Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and what was your role at Antarctica? What were you? What were you? My first, in? my first year down there, I was a winter rover scientist. We were studying the uh, cosmological, um, the remnants of the Big Bang. Okay, so when the Big Bang occurs, it leaves a background radiation at about three Kelvin. And we were studying the perturbations in that um, background radiation. Um, so my job was to take care of the telescope, to record data, and transmit that data back up to the United States. Okay. That was my first year. Yeah. Then I was hired by Carnegie Mellon University to install a new design and install a new telescope down at the South Pole. Then my third time, I was in charge of the science at the station, and I transformed Winter Site Manager, where I was in charge of the station itself. My fourth time, I went down for NASA to measure the rebound of the Transantarctic Mountains. So, fourth time, I wasn't actually at the South Pole. Okay. So, what you described in Antarctica, I'm not a fan of cold, so I can't imagine going more than once. How long were you there? Total time on ice was 28 months. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, you're coming out of there... Um, had you were you thinking at that point because this is where I want to talk a little bit about where else you've been were you thinking at that point now I got to go see the world there's so much to see oh yeah okay mm-hmm. yes so I mean because the other thing is when they fly you there the government pays for your ticket mm-hmm. but if you're there for more than a year they have to buy you a new ticket to get back so what you can do is that new ticket they just they were thinking about buying you can trade it off pay a couple hundred extra dollars and you get what they call a round the world ticket where this plane just hops. As long as you're going in the same direction around the world, you can hop from plane to plane. Okay. So where all did you go? Where did you start exploring? Oh, well, of course you start in New Zealand, right? Because that's where they let you off and stuff. Lord so, of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and then I went to Australia, um, Indonesia, um, spent a little time in Singapore, in Europe. Um, so, but, but it was a different type of travel in when you're done down there, it's not that you're going away for two weeks on vacation. Keep in mind, when I was working in Antarctica, everything I owned fit in one backpack. Mm. And I would leave there, and I had everything with me I owned, and they would drop me off in the middle of a foreign country. Now, this was also before the days of cell phone. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of laugh at people when they're afraid to leave their house without their cell phone because you know when the plane dropped me off in the middle of Indonesia... It was 10 o'clock at night. I had no reservation. As a matter of fact, I had never made a reservation in my life until I met my wife, Gwen. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a different type of travel. This is, this you is pre-travelocity and Expedia. And you, you know, I go on a trip with my family. We make reservations. We scout out where we're going to eat. We plan. So what do you do? You get into a place like Indonesia or New Zealand, and you, you're coming off the plane. You don't speak the language. What's, what's your first step? Walk out of the airport. Okay. And, and how do you, then what happens? What, what, what are you thinking? Are you thinking, what am I going to see? Where am I going to stay? What's the... Yeah, I kind of just, okay, time for me to start. You know, and you always carry the stuff with you, a blanket and stuff like that. So if you have to sleep on a park bench, you can. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, whatever's your immediate need. If it's, I'm really hungry, well, then you're searching for food. Um, when I flew into Germany, I'd, ca- I'd came out of Indonesia, and I flew, dr- flew directly to Germany. And I remember landing there in December. I didn't own a coat. So if you've ever been to uh, Germany in December, you need a coat. <laughs> so that became my first 
goal and objective was, I started wandering the streets of Germany looking for a shop to buy a coat. Uh, now, however, I also remember that Germany has these fantastic bakeries. Well, I'd been in Indonesia where, in places where I had like a bowl of rice and maybe a banana, mm-hmm. and that's all you'd have to eat because mm-hmm. of the poverty there. So to fly into Germany then, and you see all these fabulous and incredible bakeries. And that. So I remember going from shop to shop, uh, buying whatever pastries I could or sandwiches or whatever in, Ger- in the downtown streets of Fredericksburg, Germany, looking for a coat. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like travel then becomes, I mean, we think, we tend to think of travel as pleasure, right? It's, yeah. You go and you got everything. You just want to relax. You want everything to be easy and simple. For you, when you started traveling, it was more about experience, I would say. Experience, definitely, yes. The okay. experience of it. And getting involved so that you experience their culture. So that you're down on their level. When I was uh, in Australia, I made an attempt to walk from Cooktown to Cairns through the jungles. and um, How far is that? Just About 100 miles. About 100 miles, okay. Yeah. So I was, I was making this trek down. Well, some of the aboriginal groups heard about this crazy white guy <laughs> doing this walk. And even though it completely tore me up. I mean, after about three days, I'd been co- covered in leeches. Mm. More leeches than you could ever imagine and stuff. And it completely freaked me out, stuff. And so I went to the nearest dirt road and I started hitchhiking. And I picked up or was picked up by a truck driver who basically, you know, if I would get out and help him clear trees, he'd give me a ride. Well, he was delivering a load to an Aboriginal village. So I got to live for a couple of days with the Aborigines in Australia. What, what's that like? You don't, you don't speak the language? How do you start? You they, know? they know a little bit of English. Okay. And that... And, as long as you've got dirt to draw pictures in, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, if you're barter, even like in the streets of uh, Indonesia, when we were bartering, as long as you have some dirt there that you could write numbers in or whatever, or use your hands, you can always figure it out. Yeah, you know. So we and and I think this plays into it. We tend to think of our safety when we're traveling, when we're experiencing the world. Um, a lot of people will hear this and think that seems. I, I'm thinking of my parents, or as a parent, I'm thinking that sounds so unsafe, right? Do you find yourself in, in unsafe places, or do you feel like there's kind of a global hospitality? What, what's been your experience in that? Most of the countries I've been to, my transportation method has been hitchhiking. Um, never. I cannot think of a time when I've feared for my life in that. Um, you know, Now, in the United States, that's different. I would not hitchhike in the United States. Mm. Um, you know, as far as that goes, I would encourage my kid children. Right now, they're starting to become of age where I encourage them because of what I've seen. They've got to get out and learn this. Now, keep in mind, I don't wander around thinking all is good and everything like that. Um, you have to keep your eyes open and you have to watch what's going on. Um, you know, there are some bad areas out there and everything. Um, but, you know, it's like in Indonesia. I was, I was in Indonesia at a time of the riots. Some riots were going on. And it was all major news throughout the world. It was the riots in Indonesia. I was walking down a street, and it looked like there was about 100 to 200 people congregating there. And this might be a riot. I went down another street. It's that simple. Right. You just, you know. Now... In 2001, I went down to Bogota, Colombia to bid on a job. 
uh, to take internet into the jungles. During that time, I would not recommend going to Columbia. Now it's safe. So, but back then, I could literally remember running from the police in the streets of Bogota because the police would kidnap people and sell them to the FARC. Okay. And stuff. So, so you have to also you have to be aware of the country you're going to, mm-hmm. what the customs are, and learn a little bit. And if you don't, if you don't know it, and you enter that country, start asking people, start talking to people. Yeah. Um, the other thing is know your geography. I know, you know, when we went to Ethiopia, what is the quickest way out of there if we need to? Mm, yeah, you know, into another country. That's great. That's great. Um, so let me ask this: Do you have? And it's, where, well, first of all, let me ask this. Where, how many countries have you been in? Do you have a total, grand total? I don't know. Okay. But you've been on seven continents? Seven continents. All seven continents now you've been Well, it depends. If you consider Indonesia as part of the Asian continent, yes, I've been on all seven. Okay. But kind of China is my kind last area to go to. to. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what, what's the next place? Where's the next place you're heading? Uh, Greece I'll and Turkey. Greece. Taking the family? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if, if you were to look back over the years of traveling, the years of exploration, experience you've had, could you identify maybe two or three moments or stories that you feel like the, these are the ones that I'm going to hang on to forever? I'm sure that's hard to cut down. There was, yeah. I, yeah, I can, I can think of several in Or there, even a couple so. that come to mind right now. Um, one of which I was... Uh, hitchhiking through the outback in Australia. Uh, the problem with the outback is is very vast, so and it's a desert-like environment. So I can remember when the car would, you know, you'd get a lift from a car, they'd drive out so far, well, they got to their driveway, and they'd drop you off at their driveway. Just so happens their driveway is 30 miles long. <laughs> so they drive down their driveway, and you're left standing in the middle of the outback by yourself, with a car that comes by every 15, 20 minutes, and you're hitchhiking this route. I remember that feeling, okay? The other feeling that I remember is, that probably stands out more than, more so than any of them now that I think about it, is in Antarctica, the South Pole, I did what they call winter overs, right? Which is, you go down for the summertime, there's 100, and, 100 to 120 people there during the summertime for about three months. Then they close the station, and you're left with the first year there was 28 of us, the next year there was 40 of us. And when they close that station, that last plane leaves. And I remember standing out on the polar plateau, right, and everybody getting on the plane that was leaving from the summertime. And I watched that plane kind of turn off and taxi away to the end of the skiway, rev the engines up, take off, come fly overhead and we were all 28 of us were standing out there and it was maybe 50 60 below zero standing out there in all of our gear and everything like that this plane disappears and you know no matter what happens you will not see another human being for another nine months other than these people right around you no kidding (laughs) that feeling probably left the biggest impression on me in my life I bet of we are on our own Mm. But as with any, anything in Antarctica, we have a way of dealing with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all went in and got the, went to the movie theater, movie, the television set there, and we had a bunch of video, videos. Um, 
Have you ever heard the movie The Thing by Kurt, with Kurt Russell in it? Yeah. 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 That's our signature to watch that on the first day of station closing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there's a movie. There's a movie theater, or is it a TV? Is it's, it- it's a, just a large. It was a large okay. TV. Now what, it's all it's what changed. Else? For nine months in Antarctica on your own, what do you guys do for for fun? What's what's everybody do to relax? I imagine there's some drinking that happens. Back in the 50s and 60s, the U.S. government did a study, uh-huh. and they found that drinking is one of the cheapest and best ways to keep everybody entertained. In Antarctica. <laughs> so literally, I mean, literally, I have seen a C-130 pull in with just a truckload of booze, just booze stacked throughout the C-130. Yep. That said, we also have to go through psychological exams to, before we go down there when mm-hmm. we're doing a full year. One of the things the psychiatrist was concerned about me is I don't drink. Okay. So, so he was like, kept questioning that and everything like that, because it is a big part of the culture down there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of the drinking. That said, there's always a group of people down there for the wintertime that don't drink. So you find your own things to do. Okay. Um, every Monday night was our Doom night. And I don't know if you remember back years ago yeah. when Doom first came out. The original video games, yeah. Yeah, one of the original video games. And we got all networked a bunch of computers together. Keep in mind, this was in 94, 95. Mm-hmm. So for us to network a bunch of computers together. It's a big deal. And everybody played Doom together and okay. stuff. Uh, that was our Monday night entertainment. And you don't feel guilty. Like right now, I can't play video games because I feel like there's just too much to do. Down there, it didn't, didn't bother me. Right. Because we got time. Mm-hmm. Um, I also built dollhouses in my spare time down there. Mm-hmm. Um, just find different hobbies. I did some leather stitching. I, I learned to knit. Learned some new things, I'm sure. Yeah. Learned yeah. sewing. Okay. Um, everything like that. We also would have uh, weekly classes on Russian. That's where I learned to speak Russian. I was in Antarctica. Okay. Um, so. How many languages would you say you speak? I learned Spanish in high school. Okay. Then I started learning Russian in Antarctica, and I became fluent in both of those languages. But I've kind of dropped off now. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do you want to say it? there? If I try to speak one language, I mix them all together. Okay. So I'm really, I, I guess I could go back and relearn if I had to, Sure. but I'm really, really bad at sure. all of them right now. Sure. I want to transition. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your, your wife, Gwen, and you guys have three kids, yes. right? How, how old are the kiddos? Uh, 15, 12, and 10. Okay. Two boys older and then the, yep. the younger girl. Yes. And, and I've met your wife, Gwen. She's a sweetheart. And I can imagine it's an adjustment for her. You said that's the first time you made a reservation when you traveled Yes. Uh, how does you, you've got this adventurous? Let's go experience and explore. How, talk about this way of life that you you've kind of chosen, and you hinted at this a little bit. But how is this affecting your family and your kids? The way you're raising them, your marriage. What, what does it look like to take this heart that you have and now bring it into your family? Well, first, whenever I start planning a vacation. I don't think they listen to the ideas or what's going to happen or anything like that. They just automatically say, no, we're not doing that. Okay. So uh, their first impulse is no. Their first impulse is no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> but then I can generally talk to them and work them around now. This it's Christmas. You're closing the deal with them. Too, yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> this Christmas, I, I did get, we pushed it a little bit hard because we went down to Georgia and spent our Christmas in Savannah, Georgia. Great place to be and everything. But then I thought, well, wait a minute. The Okefenokee Swamp is just down the road here. Mm-hmm. So we went down to the swamp and we rented kayaks. And we kayaked the swamp. After we saw about the 100th alligator, <laughs> my, my, my wife gave me the look. Okay. And that's the look of, 
I'm done. Get me back to the spot. Get me back. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, that, that's exactly right. And uh, and she's only given me that look maybe three or four times. Okay. One of the time was uh, when uh, my one son was like seven years old. Uh, Adler, he asked me, he said, what's inside of a volcano? Let's go look. Mm. So we climbed Mount St. Helens. Okay. To look down inside the crater. Wow. Well, when you're on the side of a mountain like that, you can look thousands of feet down. And, you know, even though we weren't hanging by ropes or anything like that, but my boys really loved that. My wife and my daughter didn't enjoy that experience, that mm-hmm. feeling of being on that mountainside. Sure. And that. So, so now what we do is when we travel, like when we went to uh, Africa, uh, me and my family, uh, me and my boys went off mountain climbing, left the wife and daughter back at the motel room. Okay. And that. So, just finding balance to that. Yeah, just finding balance to that. Um, the, my wife really enjoys to travel, but so she, she enjoys the thought of a lot of this, and she enjoys when we're all doing it, but trying to match my extreme level with her, you know. It's another tension for you, I would imagine. <laughs> now, do the, kids, do the kids reflect that? Do, they, do their personalities reflect more similarly to one of you? Hmm. <laughs> no, they're, they're all their own. They're all their own. Um, okay. You know, they've, they've learned, though, how to take care of things on their own. Mm-hmm. They're not as... Um, how do you want to say it? I, I I have a tendency to just try to teach the kids to deal with themselves. You know, I, I go by the vision of, you know, my one son is 15, right? In two, three more years, he's going to be 18 years old. Hmm. He could be driving a tank into Syria. Sure. That time. Do I have him ready for that? Have I prepared him for that? Okay. What does um, that look like? What it, So... Give me some ideas of how you guys have done that, how you're preparing your kids for this independence. By giving them independence in the right things. Okay. Um, I would not think twice about if either one of my sons, my daughter's still a little bit young, if either one of my sons, if they wanted to go on a three-day backpacking trip, um, I'd shove them out the door gladly mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, you know, we, we have taken, I've taken both the boys and I've taught them, we've been doing karate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that to me is a, a major part of the is the respect. And that respect and politeness that you learn with that gets you out of more trouble than you could ever realize. Mm. So that combination of what they're learning there, um, also having to go at it with the understanding of when we're out on a trip or something like that, if if, we're, if we come across somebody that, you know, there are people that make you uneasy mm-hmm. and you're watching them. If I see my boys interacting with my wife and they're coming across somebody and I'm not around and I just kind of, I've questioned them before, what are your plans mm-hmm. with that? What are you thinking? Where are you trying to go with that? And just the whole feeling of being out there. I'm alone. I'm by myself. How do you, how are they going to react to that? Sure. Um, and quite honestly, it's also involving giving them jobs, giving them work to do, and not just, we've got to re-rough our house this summer. I refuse to pay a contractor mm-hmm. when I've got two boys sitting there that can be out doing the work. And need to learn. 
Exactly. Yeah. I need to learn. Yeah. If I take the wrong step, I'm going to be hurt. Sure. And that. You, you know, I talk with parents all the time, and I think you're getting at this, but uh, one of the things that I'll talk about is a lot of times we parent out of fear. We, we try to raise our kids with this driving sense of protection. And in my mind, that's not really what God ever intended. That's not really the way we're called to parent. It's, it's really called to raise courageous kids and help them. You know, the goal of a parent is to teach your kids to leave. I mean, yeah. that's the mm-hmm. way that I yes. see it. And it sounds like that's very similar for you guys. Very similar, but we have also have our retirement plans. Okay. <laughs> so, that, so that once the kids leave, we're actually leaving too. Yeah. And our goal is to travel to a country and live there for two or three months. Then travel to a different country, live there for two or three months. And hop from country to country, maybe to go through South America for several years or something like that. So the kids have to be ready to take care of themselves. There's a vision for that. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's great. Um, and, and then let me let me ask, and, and this is kind of the heart of what what better stories is about. You know, we we really want to invite people. This is the phrase that I use. We want them to rebel against boredom. I, I think there's this this driving sense in our world and our culture of people just settle for for whatever they they need to do um, or what they think they need to do. And so the big dream is for people to begin to create stories in their lives that are more purposeful, more intentional, more courageous, more captivating. What does that, what does that mean for you? What does, what does it look like? I mean, if you were to kind of boil it down and say, this is, this is the better story I'm going after, this is the big dream, or this is the thing that we're, we're chasing as a family or that I'm chasing as, as an individual. I would have to say what, what I'm chasing as an individual is a form of wealth. Hmm. But it's not the type of wealth that everybody is thinking of. Um, one of the times when I felt like I had been given the most, that everything was just... One of the times that I felt like I had, I had one of my best moments in life and stuff, I remember... I was, this is when I was station manager in Antarctica at the South Pole. And what I would do is I would, I didn't have, a lot of times I didn't have a a lot of work to do. So I would go to the different people working for me and I'd say, I'm going to help you for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And I'd get to experience different jobs and everything. Well, one day I was helping the mechanic. And my job was to, to basically remove an axle out of a 953B tractor, uh, remove the axles out. They were sitting out on the berms and I had to remove these axles out because the grease was frozen up in there and he had to tow it into the shop to do service on it. Well, so I'm out there and keep keep in mind, normally we take a vehicle out there or so, but it was like 90 some below zero that day and vehicles, when it gets colder than 80 some below zero, vehicles just don't perform well at all. Mm-hmm. So I walked out there and it was about a mile walk that I made. Walked out there to the berm and I had all my tools in a sled there, and I've got the big wrenches. And, you know, once you get this, this pattern of bolts off, then you take a sledgehammer. You have to beat this thing. And I'm, I get one axle out, and I'm working on the next axle. And these are not, you know, small. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm working on the next axle and stuff like that. And, you know, you, another problem we have down there is uh, when you breathe out, the breath creates moisture, and that freezes on your face. Right, okay. Well, I've had your eyes freeze shut then. So, so you know, you okay, I'm, I'm unthawing my one eye and getting yeah. back to work there and stuff. And I stop. And I think, how cool is this? <laughs> I'm at the bottom of the earth right now, dead of winter, mm. dark, 
dark as could be, you know, could see some stars out there and everything like that, by myself, out removing an axle off of a tractor. Mm-hmm. I started out as some dumb farm boy. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, when I was 15 years old, I went to work in a slaughterhouse. Okay. And I thought, how did I go from there to there? Yeah. And that's what I want to do. I want to keep moving from there to there. And that's the wealth you're talking about. Yeah. The mm-hmm. fulfillment, the contentment. Yeah. Keep in mind, when I was down there, I felt like the wealthiest person alive. Everything I've owned fit in one backpack. Sure. Sure. So. Wow. That's, that's great. That's great. Um, so I always wrap up these interviews with putting people on a hot seat where I basically ask just some quick random fire questions. Okay. Is that okay? Yep. Is that fair? Um, best exotic food you've ever eaten? A burger with a lot. With what? It, what is a it? burger with a lot. Okay. And that's just the first thing that popped in my mind. Okay. Um, and that's a hamburger in the middle of the outback of Australia that has beets, uh, tomato, onion, uh, eggs, et cetera. Just a huge hamburger in the middle of the... Okay. Know. Great. Worst, worst food you've ever eaten. When I was in Indonesia, to supplement the, um, the rice diet they had... They would put maggots in there. Oh my goodness! And did <laughs> and you did you know that going into that meal? I noticed it very quickly. Okay. And uh, but did you continue to make your way you continue to do it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow, you took that seriously. <laughs> <laughs> How about um, best moment with your family on a trip? The first one that comes to mind is. When my one son of eight and the other one of 11, and we crested the top of Mount St. Helens. Mm. Uh, just so happens that I was, as a kid, I spent sixth grade wearing a mask because of the ash fallout from Mount St. Helens. Mm. So t- for me to be able to take my kids back there, we climbed that mountain and looked down inside the crater. That, to me, was... That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. How about, um, do you have any most embarrassing moment on a trip? You can share what you're comfortable with. <laughs> I was... In Antarctica, they have a thing called the 300 Club, which when it gets colder than 100 below zero, you turn the sauna up to 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. You go into the sauna, you run out of the sauna, out of the building, out around the South Pole, and back in the sauna. Whew. I'm imagining there's not many clothes involved either. Exactly. That's the whole thing is you have to be, you, you can wear boots. Okay. Well, I took a cowboy hat with me, and a friend of mine had a sombrero. And we stopped really quickly, and we grabbed pictures of us. I was holding my cowboy hat in front of myself. He was holding a sombrero. So there's a picture in existence of this. <laughs> oh, it gets much better than this. So we take those pictures and got them developed as we are leaving and stuff like that. And, um, you know, shared them. I shared them with this other guy and stuff like that. Apparently that picture got out. Because I'm, I'm sitting there at the airport in New Zealand... And the BBC News show had a story about South Pole and the 300 Club. Boom. There, this picture of me naked with a cowboy hat in front of me flashes up on the screen. That's amazing. So I, yeah. So you have no shame anywhere now. Nope. (laughs) That's great. Um, Mike, thank you so much. It's been a a pleasure and a privilege to hear your stories. And hopefully it challenges some people that are listening. So we appreciate you. Okay. Thank you. Awesome.